Remember how your parents recorded your height on the doorframe year after year to measure your growth spurts? On this Selected Shorts, fiction that does the impossible, charting emotional growth spurts. I'm Meg Wallitzer. Hold still, I'll get my pencil so we can make note of yours. You're listening to Selected Shorts, where our greatest actors transport us through the magic of fiction, one short story at a time. Rarely do humans get to grow on our own terms. I mean, sure, we all say that we want to grow and become better people, but if we're left to our own devices, we might just end up on the couch ordering Thai food and binging the entire season of a beloved Scottish costume drama, strong-thighed poetic men in kilts. There are worse ways to go. But still... If we want to become better people, pressure is often required. We may have to commit to new experiences that take us out of our comfort zones. And if we can't find ways to make this happen on our own, maybe a little bit of magic can help things along. The stories on today's Selected Shorts are all about growth, aided by some sort of fantastical assistance. The characters in these pieces are stuck. And consciously or not, they're looking for something to give them just a little push. And that nudge comes in the form of magic. In the first story, a backyard garden presents a young family with a new world of fertility. And in the second, the afterlife provides a perfect platform for questions about love, commitment, and the meaning of forever. Our first piece is by writer Naomi Kritzer. She's a sci-fi and fantasy author whose titles include Fires of the Faithful and the YA novel Catfishing on the Catnet. We read her delightful Hugo Award-winning short story Cat Pictures, Please!, on an earlier episode of Selected Shorts. Today's fanciful piece finds its uncharted territory in a suburban backyard. It's exciting in the way that planting seeds always is, because it's all about what might or might not happen. The story is read by Jane Kaczmarek. While she is often remembered for the series Malcolm in the Middle, Kaczmarek is also a stage actor with credits including A Long Day's Journey Into Night, and she has hosted many Selected Shorts both on tour and on the radio. Now, here's Jane Kaczmarek performing Naomi Kritzer's Isabella's Garden. Want to plant something? How about we make Play-Doh cookies, sweetheart? Would you like me to roll out the Play-Doh for you? Want to plant another pumpkin? There isn't room for more pumpkins. We already planted the pumpkin hills. Want to plant morning glories? Morning glories. I looked around the garden at the chain-link fence that bordered the neighbor's yard. Well, we hadn't planted over there yet. Why not? We'll have to go buy seeds, I said. We can go to the garden store, Isabella said brightly and ran to put on her shoes. I stepped out onto the back porch while she searched for her sandals. The pumpkins were coming up, their big leaves sprouting off thick, fuzzy vines. And so were the carrots, the eggplants, the cucumbers, the beans, all the beans, even the ones that Isabella had dropped on top of the dirt, the lavender and the mustard greens. Of all the things my two-and-a-half-year-old daughter had insisted on planting, I thought the mustard greens were probably the weirdest. At least with the eggplant, I could understand why the big purple globes on the seed packet had caught her eye. Mustard greens weren't flowers. They weren't purple. And they weren't something she usually ate. But she'd thrown an absolute fit when I tried to slip those seeds back into the seed rack. So, into our cart they went. 
I had stopped pretending that the patch of dirt out behind our house was my garden anymore. And really, that was just as well. Gardening, fertility, I joked to my husband Charlie, and those rare days when I had a sense of humor about it, had never really been my thing. Seeds I planted did not sprout. Flowers withered. Tomatoes stayed green on the vine right up until the frost. As an experiment during one of those bitter, bitter summers, before I managed to get pregnant with Isabella, I planted five zucchini hills, and I didn't get a single zucchini. <laughs> well, I did get Isabella. It took just four years of trying. Fertility charting, invasive tests, Clomid, injectables, finally in vitro, but we had our baby. Isabella came trotting back, her sandals fastened neatly under the wrong feet, a naked baby doll under her arm, a big smile on her face. Now we can go to the garden store, she announced. So I got my purse, we walked onto the little neighborhood shop where they knew Isabella by name. Isabella headed straight for the revolving seed rack. Hang me up, she said, lifting up her arms. I lifted her up so she could reach the top of the rack, and I watched as she selected three varieties of morning glories, blue, purple, and white, plus more seed packets on her way down. I flipped through her selections. Climbing black-eyed Susans, climbing snapdragons, trumpet vine, scarlet runner beans. She apparently decided to go with the decorate the fence theme. Well, she'd also grabbed a package of ornamental kale and turnips and cabbage. You've never even eaten cabbage, I said, holding up a pack. Or turnips. Wanna plant cabbage? Wanna plant turnips? She snatched the seed packets and laid them protectively in the cart. How about we just plant the kale? I can probably find a spot for the kale. Want the kale too? Well, it was only $1.29 a packet. I sighed and I went to pay for our latest pile of seeds. I found places for cabbage and kale and even the turnips. And then we spent the rest of the afternoon planting vine seeds along the fence. Teresa, our next-door neighbor, came out to check her mail while Isabella was working. Well, it's quite a little helper you've got there, she said. Thank you, I said, thinking she didn't know the half of it. Oh, she's a doll. When are you going to give her a baby sister? Do you want a baby sister, sweetheart? I ground my teeth and stood up. Come on, Isabella, let's go plant some more turnips. Back in the vegetable garden, Isabella dug a furrow with her toddler-sized trowel. Want a baby sister, she said a few minutes later, carefully dropping seeds into the dirt. Well, I don't have one for you, kiddo, I said. Want to plant a sister? That actually made me giggle. Uh, well, they don't sell that kind of seed at the garden store. I bought Charlie a pound of gourmet jelly beans for Father's Day, and he generously shared the flavors he didn't like with Isabella. She didn't care if they were peanut butter or popcorn flavored, as long as it was candy and we were letting her eat it. She ate all of them, except for one, a creamy bean with yellow flecks, which she held up and looked at thoughtfully. Want to plant it? Honey, it's a jelly bean. It's not a seed, I said. Want to plant the bean? Come outside with Daddy, Charlie said generously. I'll help you plant it. She hopped down from her chair and wrapped her hand around her father's thumb. 
her other hand still carefully cradling the bean. When I first saw the jelly bean vine coming up, I assumed it was a morning glory or something. The leaves were shaped like valentines and the color was a light silvery green. But when I took Isabella out around the garden and we looked at everything that was coming up, she pointed to it and said, that's the bean plant. The scarlet runner beans, I said. Daddy's bean, Isabella said. Well, it flowered the first week of July and shortly afterwards produced thick pods that looked almost like green beans, except they were the color of cream. I pulled one off immediately out of curiosity and I looked inside. Well, the beans were tiny and immature, but I could see the rainbow of colors tucked inside the pod. I shivered and almost ripped out the whole plant. Then, curiosity overcoming my worry, I tasted one. It was sour. It was like fruit that needed time to ripen. By the next day, the pods were as thick as fingers, and Isabella decided it was time to harvest them. We took out a basket and picked all the big yellow-white pods off that plant. Then we took them inside, and we sat at the dining room table and shucked them, putting the beans in a jar. They had grown in a full range of flavors. The beans I dropped into the jar were yellow, orange, cotton candy pink. I set aside one of the big, fat, creamy pods for Charlie to see when he got home, in case he didn't want to believe me. Well, even with that pod, he thought it was some kind of elaborate prank. He peeled the pod back, popping a light orange bean into his mouth, and laughed. Hey, Izzy Bean, come here. Let me give you something. He took a quarter out of his pocket and he put it in her hand. They always told me that money doesn't grow on trees. Let's just see if they really know what they're talking about. Let's you and I go outside and plant a money tree and see what comes up. It took just a week of daily watering to get the money tree to sprout. Charlie thought that I must have gone down to the garden store and to get some other kind of a seedling tree just to mess with his head. Oh, oh, and the jelly bean vine? Well, you could have bought jelly beans. The pod they came in? You aren't seriously telling me it sprouted. You are seriously not listening to me because that's exactly what I'm telling you. Now, it usually takes fruit trees years to bear fruit. But Isabella's money tree bloomed in early August, though it was only about as tall as she was. The flowers glittered in the sun and their petals clinked when Isabella picked them. She got out the brass vase I let her use for her cut flowers and arranged the money flowers in it. I left it at Charlie's place at the table. Charlie sat down slowly when he saw the money tree flowers. He touched the blooms, making the petals ring like wind chimes. Should have had her plant a 20, I said. <laughs> Charlie glanced at me nervously and touched the flower again. Then he took a quarter out of his pocket and compared it. Well, they're not quite right, he said after a few minutes. They're a little irregular. The design is right, but they're not perfect circles. And they're a little too small, but they definitely won't work in a vending machine. Well, you're probably right. 20s would probably have had some flaw, too, he said. They'd be missing that anti-counterfeiting strip or something. Well, it's probably not ethical to spend any of it anyway, I said, flicking the pedal with my fingernail to hear it clink again. I mean, it is counterfeit money. Just because Isabella grew it doesn't make it 
you know, kosher to spend. I glanced at Isabella, who was watching Charlie with a sober look on her face, her naked baby doll in her arms. But it's a beautiful flower, sweetheart. I think Daddy loves his money tree. I do, definitely, he said, and lifted her onto his lap. Want to spend the money? Isabella said, plucking a petal from the flower and dropping it onto the table. What do you want to buy, kiddo? I said. Want to buy a baby sister? (laughs) September came and the little green pumpkins were growing on the pumpkin vines. The morning glories covered the fence, blue, white, and purple. There were purple eggplants swelling like tiny lilac eggs and sweet orange carrots and more cucumbers than we could ever eat. And Isabella carefully scrubbed each turnip and stacked them in a plastic crate in our dining room. I looked up turnip recipes, never having eaten them before. And Teresa came over to look at Isabella's garden. And Isabella gave her a tour of the flowers and the ornamental kale, which theoretically we could have eaten. But it was just such a beautiful, brilliant red, I didn't want to pick it. Honey, would you like to give Teresa some turnips? I asked Isabella as we reached the turnip patch. Oh, no, 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 thank you, she said. I, I, I couldn't possibly. Well, you wouldn't reject Isabella's turnips, would you? Let me just get you a sack. We have tons. I left her protesting in Isabella's garden. While I was filling the sack with turnips, I saw Isabella showing Teresa her carrots and cabbages. And Teresa glancing my way and then bending down to whisper something to Isabella. I tossed in an extra turnip and went back outside. They really are pretty vegetables. They're purple and white, but we are never going to be able to eat the two bushels of them Isabella has grown. Teresa glared back at me as I handed her the sack, but she thanked Isabella for the kind gift and headed back to her own house. Isabella was now looking with sudden new interest in the garden, and I had the bad feeling she was going to demand to plant something new. But instead, she went to get a little wheelbarrow so that I could help her dig up more turnips. I had hoped that her interest in the garden would wane a little bit as we got closer to winter. It was going to snow, after all, and there was a limit to the number of things we could grow in pots in the house. But if anything, over the next week, her interest intensified. As soon as she was out of bed, she wanted to run out and look at it. At the very least, she wanted to walk through it before eating her breakfast, clutching a little plastic toy. She seemed to have lost interest in the baby doll. I hadn't seen the naked baby doll in days. We'd come back out after breakfast to pick anything that was ready to harvest, and then she'd want to walk through it again in the afternoon. About a week after Teresa's visit, I woke up one morning to a funny noise coming from the backyard. Oh my God, there's a cat out there, I thought. (laughs) Isabella was already up, standing expectantly in the hallway. Want to go to the garden now, she said. Well, put your clothes on first, I said, yawning, putting on my own blue jeans and sweatshirt. Isabella vanished back to her room, emerging minutes later with her shirt on backwards, but otherwise fully dressed. Now we can go to the garden, she insisted. Well, the cat was still there. We went downstairs, and I opened the back door. Isabella sprinted out. There's the baby sister, she called to me. And lying beside the cabbage plant, I saw a flash of pink. 
Well, she must have left her doll out there, I thought. But it was moving. The cabbage patch, I whispered. Teresa must have told her that babies grew in cabbage patches and that if she planted her doll, well, the baby in the cabbage patch was crying. It was a thin little newborn whale. She quieted as soon as I picked her up. Isabel appeared at her with interest. I stroked her soft hair. It was so much like Isabella's and her, and her tiny toes. She had no belly button. I traced the edges of her stomach, not quite daring to touch it in the middle, smooth like an egg. That's a baby sister, Isabella said. Isabella, where did this baby come from? She grew, Isabella said. Honey, babies don't grow in gardens. Sweetheart, they... Whose baby is this? Isabella reflected on this for a minute and then said... That baby sister grew in the garden. I sat down on the porch swing, swaying back and forth, my head spinning. What, should I call Charlie, the police? Yeah, and what am I going to say? And what am I going to do with this baby? It's not like we can just bring it in and keep it like we found a stray cat. The baby opened its eyes and regarded me for a moment. What am I going to do with you? Isabella skipped over to lean on my knee, her hands empty. I blinked at her, thinking, oh, she had a toy when we came outside. Where is it? Want a dragon, <laughs> Isabella said. I blinked again. I looked at the yard, at the tangle of pumpkin vines, eggplants, beans, cabbages, and one dragon, or a dragon seed. Well, maybe there'll be an early frost. <laughs> That's it. That was Jane Kaczmarek reading Isabella's Garden by Naomi Kritzer. You know, we don't often feature stories that have that kind of sweetness to them. Isabella's innocence isn't punctured or damaged in any way. Like the jelly beans and money trees, it just kind of brings her mother's sense of possibility back to life. I think possibility is what we crave. When my younger kid was in kindergarten, we threw him a birthday party for which my husband and I worked up a mind-reading act. One of us would say, I'm thinking about a particular kid in this room, and then both of us would have a seemingly random conversation, and the other one of us would guess the name of the kid. We got it right every single time, and the kids shrieked, How did you know? Are you psychic? Was it magic? It was magic, right? We didn't want to lie to a room full of five-year-olds, but we also didn't want to reveal all. Because while they believed in magic, the beauty of their excitement and awe was itself a kind of magic, and for that one day, we believed in it too. I hope the kids at that party, who are now 27 years old and are brand influencers and day traders, aren't listening. But here's how we did it. Let's say it was my turn to pick a kid, and I picked Luke. I would casually say something like, Listen up, kids, everyone. See, the first letter of each word spelled out the name. In this case, L-U-K-E, Luke. Magic? Maybe not, in hindsight. But on that one long-ago afternoon, definitely. When we return, losing your life to a crocodile, yet finding yourself. I'm Meg Wallitzer. 
You're listening to Selected Shorts, recorded live in performance at Symphony Space in New York City and at other venues nationwide. Welcome back. This is Selected Shorts, where our greatest actors transport us through the magic of fiction, one short story at a time. I'm Meg Wallitzer. Can't get enough of Selected Shorts on the airwaves? Join us live on tour. This season, we're taking some of our favorite stories and actors coast to coast. On October 22nd, Selected Shorts returns to the Academy of Music in Northampton for an evening of short fiction sure to touch the heart and tickle the funny bone. These tales run the gamut, featuring misadventures at the water park, skyscrapers on the move, and the sweeter side of parenthood. This night of love and laughter stars Short's favorites Becca Blackwell, Mike Doyle, and Sonia Manzano. Tickets are available now at aomtheater.com. We hope to see you there. In this show, stories about growth, helped along by some supernatural assistance. And you know, we at Selected Shorts like to think that fiction is its own kind of supernatural assistance. For a bit more of our growth formula, just head to SelectedShorts.org. We've got stories about families, ghosts, talking dogs, you name it, all primed to expand your world a little. Plus, while you're on the site, you can learn about the Selected Shorts writing contest or subscribe to the show. And if one of our stories triggers your next growth spurt, leave us a review to let us know. The author of our next piece is Rachel Kong. Her debut novel, Goodbye Vitamin, a touching and funny look at aging and Alzheimer's, was listed as a best book of the year by outlets including Vogue and NPR. This story, My Dear You, is about losing your life while gaining something that's incredibly hard to describe, and it gives a sense of Kong's vast imagination. Stick around after the story to hear my conversation with the author, Rachel Kong. Performing this story is Annie Q. She's an actor who has appeared in series including The Leftovers and films such as Alex Strangelove, and she's currently a part of the Kung Fu reboot, so yeah, she's got range, she's got chops, she's got it all. Now here's Annie Q performing an abridged version of My Dear You by Rachel Kong. My Dear You, I selected 54 millimeters for the space between my eyes. All my life, my eyes had been far apart. And growing up, the other kids called me Hammerhead. Something nobody tells you is that when you die a death in which your face and body are utterly maimed, you get to choose your face in heaven. Your body to some extent as well, because you're given a body that corresponds to your chosen face. But skin color, nose shape, lips, and teeth? It's all up to you. That's the silver lining. Take your time said Richard, whose position or rank was, I don't know what. I thought of him as my prison guard, even though this was, I was pretty positive, heaven. He spoke in short, authoritative sentences and seemed bored like prison guards on TV. It was just how I thought of him. I'm not saying that's what he was, 
We were vacationing in Australia, Adam and I. It was a crocodile who murdered me, who clamped on my face and body with its many sharp teeth and crushed my bones. It didn't chew me. That's not what they do. They swallow prey whole and grind up their food with countless little rocks in their digestive tracts. If the prey is too big to swallow whole, they tear it into smaller pieces first. The tearing and the rocks left my face entirely fucked. (laughs) Crocodile tears are insincere tears because crocodiles cry while devouring their prey. Did this one cry when it ate me? They told me yes, because that's just what their glands do. How old was it? They told me 70, meaning that this crocodile outlived me by 40 years, which I didn't know whether to feel happy or sad about. I asked Richard how much time I had in reality to mull over the face and the certain aspects of the body they were permitting me to do over. He said 24 hours, but that heaven hours worked a little differently. Why? Do you need an extension? He said, without inflection. I said it was okay. Richard had been so patient and accommodating with the questions I'd had so far, I didn't really want to impose further. How does this work? I'd asked him. What part? I wanted to know what the face would be for. Would I be eating with my new mouth? Would I be tanning with my new skin? And another question I had, was there the possibility of ever falling in love again? He'd said yes to all of the above, and that I would soon see that death wasn't so different from life. He used scare quotes, except for the new people. New to me, people. I chose brownish-green eyes with speckles. There was a computer program for this, and all I had to do was drop the features into a shopping cart-type basket, as though I were online shopping, and it would show up more or less instantaneously on my face, which I could then check the fit of right away in the mirror. I chose my original style of ears, a light bulb shape with soft lobes with a peachy fuzz, because Adam had liked them. In our hotel room the night before the accident, I had polled him on what he liked best about me. We were on our honeymoon, if you can believe. Earlobes, wrist, smile, he'd said, flashing me his cheesy one. I never liked my teeth, so I changed those too. I made them slightly bigger and whiter and more rectangular. Adam would have hated this, But he wasn't here, was he? We were 30 years old and had just promised, underneath a gazebo in front of most of the people we cared about, that we would spend the rest of our lives together. And it was true that I did. (laughs) I kept my part of the promise. I wasn't sure if I wanted to still be a Chinese person, So I saved that detail for last. It felt a little unethical to get to choose. I closed my eyes and clicked the mouse at a random point on the screen. 
Chinese, it said. And my eyes sharpened at the edges into the almond-shaped ones I'd had all my life. I would be lying if I said I wasn't a little crestfallen. What Richard had meant about the time being weird was that you felt it differently. One day, I was playing racquetball with my new friend Heidi, and we were having a blast, swatting maniacally, unsure how to play, because we never played before. Then we heard angry knocks at the door. It was a couple, holding rackets and looking testy. Can we please use the room? The woman said. We've been waiting. We're so sorry, Heidi said, deferring in her southern drawl. When we looked at our watches, we realized we'd been in there for four years. (laughs) As the time passed, I could picture faces from life less vividly. My mother's was the first to go, then my father's. Even though I'd seen their faces for 30 years, even though I would have said to you that I knew their faces intimately, almost as intimately as I know my own face, which I began to forget as well. In the beginning here, I would see a man and think to myself, his chin looks like Adam's, or his hands with their big rectangular nails look like Adam's. But after a decade, I couldn't remember those hands or his chest, or even his height. Was he tall? Was he short? I held as tightly as I could to the memory of his face, Adam's face. Every morning, I reconstructed him from the facts I clung to. The color of his eyes, hazel. The color of his hair, dark brown. The length of his eyelashes, long. His body was gone and his scent was gone, but his face I had and kept, and I swore I'd keep forever. Maybe it was an unhealthy fixation, but he was the love, you know, of my life. From a purely numbers perspective, he was 75% of my relationships. Everyone in heaven is 33 years old, like Jesus. I was aged three years, and babies get aged a lot of years. Old men and women get years shed from them, but retain their emotional IQs and their years of life experience. I joined a book club. I took a drawing class, mostly so I could draw faces, including you-know-whos. After about 20 years, my racquetball skills turned a corner, and I began beating Heidi to both of our surprises. Day in and day out, I tried to remember my facts about my former husband, the golden eyes and brown hair and long eyelashes. I drew his face over and over in my class, though it never looked completely right. And what was his name? Sometimes I couldn't recall and would have to check. Adam, I wrote in tiny, nearly imperceptible letters on my bedroom wall. But the janitor kept erasing it, 
And so I wrote it, Adam, on a scrap of paper and tucked it underneath my fitted sheet and remembered to retrieve it before every laundry day, which was Tuesdays. We had had our problems, Adam and I. Of course we did. We respected each other, though, and that, to me, was always the main thing. We talked through our differences. The conversations were always helpful, but in my mind, they reinforced how separate we were as people. The day we got married, I caught in his eye a glimmer of worry about what we were about to embark upon. That glimmer was like a shard of glass that flew over to me and caught on me like pantyhose to a dry patch of skin, like a burr to a sock. And I had to excuse myself from our table to cry in the expensive carpeted porta potty. Tears of joy, I said when I got back, and a few tears fell out, and Adam smiled and vacuumed the droplets off my face with his mouth, a joke we had. For some reason, I constantly checked the paper under the mattress to remind myself of my husband's name. What had we done together? I sometimes jotted things down, like a grocery list. I jump-started his car when he left the headlights on. He bit the backs of my knees in a playful manner. We watched streaming television. We had dinners with my immigrant parents and his normal ones. We took selfies on our phones from crazy angles and sent them to each other and tried to outdo each other's hideousness. Before getting married, we'd talked circles around marriage what it would be, what it meant to people. Was it a thing we were going to do? Sometimes the talks ended in me turning away so my mouth could contort into a ridiculous downturned shape and I could cry quietly. There was never a warning. The sadness would overcome me all of a sudden. When we would each respond to something simple like, how was your day? Or how was work? I would listen and wait for the truer answer, how he felt and what he was scared of. Some insight into what one of his brain regions said to another of his brain regions. It was exhausting, I bet, for him. It was exhausting for me, too. In the end, he was my husband for a day. Was I too demanding? I just wanted to know him. I thought that was the point, knowing people. But what did I know, I guess, really? On a Tuesday, I was busy destroying Heidi at racquetball, and I forgot to hide the slip of paper that said Adam from the housekeeper. And when I got back, my sheets were freshly laundered, and the slip of paper was gone. Don't cry, I instructed myself out loud, feeling myself about to. I called Heidi, and we got drunk on artisanal gin, and I didn't cry, even though I couldn't believe myself, couldn't believe what I had done. You stupid bitch, I repeated to myself that night, incredibly drunk. How could you? 
Where are you from? People sometimes asked me, admiring my face. California, I would say. I mean, where are you from originally? They would ask, and I would think, come on. I would think, is this really still happening here? Somehow, things started to change. Without even trying, I met a guy. It was at the art studio where I was drawing what I could remember of my husband's face, which lately wasn't much, just that he had one with all the regular stuff on it. And this guy was making a mug. He was stretching some clay into a handle. Who is that? He asked. And though my husband's name was on the tip of my tongue, I didn't have it. It eluded me. I'm sorry, he said, when he noticed how troubled I seemed not to know the answer. I'm Adam, he said. Hi, Adam, I said, liking the name, liking how it sounded when I said it. Adam asked, did I want to have dinner sometime? I don't know, I started to say. I'm new here, he said, very kindly. I almost said, I'm new here too, but in fact, I'd been here for over 50 years. We got burgers at the drive-in. We made small talk. He told me he died peacefully in his sleep. He was 84. It was Christmas Eve. He'd been sick with pneumonia, and his wife was asleep in the room. She'd been tending to him. He'd had a nice day with his daughters and son and their families. His was a pretty good one, he said, a little wistfully. Death? I asked. I meant life, he said. But yeah, that too. He asked some basic new-to-death questions, like, can I just eat whatever the hell I want without gaining weight? And, they do your laundry for you? <laughs> Answers, yes, and yes. He ordered a chocolate milkshake and chili cheese fries and wiped his greasy hands on his pants. Can you watch your family? He asked. Like, haunt them? And I said, no, of course not. A little insensitively, I realized, when he seemed deflated. I'm sorry, I said. It makes sense, he said. Adam was easy to talk with. He cracked a lot of jokes, some that made me groan, and a few that made me laugh and laugh like I hadn't laughed in years. He didn't ask me where I was from originally, or try to get into my pants. I have a hard time feeling comfortable with new people in general, but somehow he put me at ease. Depressing that that kind of person comes around only once every half a century, but again, I try not to dwell. You remind me of someone, he said. The word remind was practically foreign to me. 
I knew it meant something to some people, and I understood it in theory, but I couldn't put my finger on ever having felt it. Could we do this again sometime? He asked. Well, I said, I'm kind of busy these days. I'm joking, I added quickly when he looked disappointed again. It was a joke. You'll get it soon, I said. Tomorrow, he said. Sure, tomorrow, I said. He turned to go, then paused. Where are you from again? He asked. I held back a sigh. California, I said. But, like, where in California? He asked. I don't remember, I said, honestly. Oh, he said. Well, it's not important. See you tomorrow. The next night, we were supposed to meet at the clock tower. In the plaza, 12 Chinese ladies who reminded me of my mother were doing synchronized exercises. They were all my age, even though I'm sure they had been 100 when they died. Every night is a full moon night, but the moon changes colors. Tonight, it was the color of lavender. Under the lavender moon, the ladies glowed purple swinging their arms, singing along in Chinese, and Adam was circling them, looking for me, appearing nervous. Hey! I shouted at him. Right away, his face changed to a relieved one. He had a paper bag containing two submarine sandwiches. They were cut in half, so we swapped halves and ate them on a bench by the river. I miss my wife, he said softly. I miss my kids. It's hard, I said, though I couldn't recall. Was it hard? It's hard, he agreed. We got up to brush the crumbs off and started to stroll the river. He hadn't finished his sandwich, so he clutched the paper bags as we walked. I wished I had something meaningful to tell him in exchange for his vulnerability. Earlier, I'd beat Heidi in racquetball. I'd lifted my mattress and looked underneath for some reason. I didn't know why. I wanted to ask him more about his wife and his kids, but we were discouraged from encouraging nostalgia in new residents. What else could we talk about that would make us better friends? and bring us closer. I racked my brain as we ambled. A dog came up to us, a beautiful golden dog that was 33 in dog years, <laughs> like all the dogs were. It was without an owner, without a collar. It allowed Adam to stroke its golden head, so I reached out to touch it. It stepped back. It looked at me, and started to snarl, and then bark. It was specifically barking at me. This was exasperating, but familiar. This dog, unfortunately, was racist. <laughs> there are racist dogs here, Adam said, skeptical. 
I shrugged, disappointed but resigned. There are racist dogs everywhere. Adam reached into his paper bag and tore some meat from his sandwich. He gave the racist dog a little swatch of meat. The racist dog changed its tune. The racist dog was now begging us for more. Hey, Adam handed me the sandwich bag, and I ripped off some meat, too. I kneeled to give it to the dog. Here, asshole, I whispered. We fed the dog the rest of Adam's sandwich and started again on our way. The dancing women were no longer dancing, but chit-chatting. The racist dog followed us. We would occasionally turn around to check if it was still there. It was. Maybe we should keep him, Adam said. Keep that racist dog? He's reformed, Adam said. He could make it up to you. That had been my husband's strength, I suddenly recalled. He was good at soothing you, and at the same time, you weren't 100% positive that he really got it. I took Adam's arm then. It was a beautiful night, the purple reflecting off the trees, off the water, off the houses. I fell a little bit in love, and then a lot. You have beautiful ears, he said, tucking my hair behind them, forgetting his wife already, his kids. In the end, we kept the dog. She turned out to be a she, and we named her Betsy, and taught her how not to be racist, sexist, or bigoted in any way. Adam and I, we wound up being together for a hundred years, many of them great We took Betsy for long walks, played doubles tennis, left our clothes at each other's places, made conversation topics of our fears. We were tolerant. This was love. Though the breakup was amicable, I cried and cried anyway. And he sucked each individual tear off my face like a vacuum. I've never seen you cry. I complained, not once in a hundred years. And Adam looked into the distance, appeared to focus really hard, and squeezed a single tear out of the corner of his eye. Get a spoon, he said. We slid the tear onto the spoon. Then he kissed me, gently, on the cheek, and was gone. I used the spoon with the tear on it to stir sugar into my coffee, which is delicious here. It's the fairest of trade. I took my time drinking the coffee. It was heavenly, smooth and lacking any bitterness. It tasted like flowers and dirt. When I was finished, I put the mug in the sink, and even though we had custodians, For some reason, I washed the mug and the spoon. While I was at it, I washed my face. I put my running shoes on and my earbuds in my ears. I touched my toes to stretch. I jogged out of my house to pop music. 
Outside, it was a sunny day. Here's what I know. Someone in my past mattered a lot to me. We had a beautiful, irreplaceable relationship that was one in a million. Sometimes I'll write him or her a letter. My dear you, I'll start it. Thank you. That was My Dear You by Rachel Kong, read by Annie Q. I'm Meg Wallitzer. The world in that story is so engaging that I wanted to talk with the author herself about the afterlife, writing, and everything else. I sometimes say that novels are like advent calendars. There are a lot of different windows or doors that you could enter through it. But I think it's really true for stories. What was the point of entry here? The story really started for me as, I think, just a reflection into relationships. Mm -hmm. I was at a point in my relationship with my partner where marriage was on the table. We were talking about it. But um, I won't say who is who, but one of us was sort of more interested in it than the other. And I think with my fiction writing, I'm always interested in interrogating and exploring things that are imposed on us by modern society, right? Just conventions, I think, of American life especially. And so I was thinking about relationships. I was thinking about what makes a successful relationship. Does that mean you get married and you never get divorced? Does it mean that you stay with a person forever? And that's that's really um, the seed of where this story came from. Well, it, it works so beautifully. And the idea of forever here is you have a lot of fun with that. I know you're a very, very funny writer, but even more specific than that, I guess I would say this feels like a playful story. Do you feel playful when you're beginning something? I really do. You know, I think with short stories especially, maybe a little bit more than novels, I think that they're a chance to have a lot of fun and play around and to explore what I'm thinking about. I start a story, I don't know where it's going. And I think part of the fun of it for me is finding out what these characters are up to, what they're thinking about, what they're obsessed with. Did you know where this was going to go at the end or was it like what you just described? It was exactly what I just described. I started with that idea of the character choosing her face in heaven. Mm -hmm. Started with the idea of a relationship really cut short. You know, they're married for basically one day. And then from there, the rest just kind of spilled out. And I had no idea where it was going, but it was so much fun to follow those threads. The jokes are so great. There's a wonderful line. A couple is waiting to use the racquetball court. And you have this line... When we looked at our watches, we realized we'd been in there for four years. And I just thought that was very, very funny. But in a weird way, that is sort of what relationships are like. Being with other people is like anyway. I mean, I find myself saying again and again, oh, I haven't seen her in a while. And then I realized it was 20 years. And I, oh. I sort of am embarrassed to say that. But there is this beautiful look and exploration of time. Yeah. You seem really interested in time. I am. I think that, especially during the pandemic, time has behaved so strangely. 
I think for a writer, especially, time works <laughs> works very weirdly. I come to the page day after day, and I'm working for hours on my writing each day. But in the final work, you kind of can't even think about the time that was spent put into it. You know, it would be no. You'd feel like what horrifying. did I do with my life? You'd be absolutely <laughs> exactly. feel horrified. I know exactly. Is there a metaphorical idea of the afterlife here? I really don't know where the afterlife came from. This was actually before the really wonderful show, The Good Place. Mm-hmm. I was raised pretty Christian. I've always had this idea of the afterlife sort of presented to me as a given, right? Just something that would happen. You know, don't worry if you don't fully live your life here. There's the afterlife and it's going to be great if you make it there. And so I think... <laughs> I really didn't want this to be that Christian idea of heaven. I wanted it to be a little bit earth-like, right, in its imperfections. The only things about it that make it the afterlife are these strange things that you've mentioned, you know, the, the extended strange ways in which time moves and the moon changes colors. Mm-hmm. So sometimes it's purple, sometimes it's orange, maybe. Just little details that make it heaven, I think, but really very different from the Christian idea of heaven. I couldn't really tell which is sadder, things going on forever or things not going on forever, right? It's, it's hard to know. Exactly. I think that's a question that I wanted to ask, and I don't really have the answer to. <laughs> right. Well, I thought you might. And in fact, I, so I shouldn't trust your version of the afterlife. That's not the version. I'm like looking to you. I'm clinging to you for understanding. Yeah, that would these. be amazing. <laughs> if we just showed up, showed up there and it happened to be all of those things. If you were right, you would get big credit. I hope that I get an award up there. You know, one of the aspects of the afterlife in this story is that everybody is 33 years old, which I think sounds great. Have you ever done this when you give a reading somewhere you decide to change a line, and then there's always a reason why you didn't write it that way, and you find it out on stage in front of people. I think I haven't been bold enough to actually do the changing. I always, I see the page, and I badly want to change it, and I think to myself, Mm -hmm. if I had only had one more pass. Don't do it. (laughs) Don't do it. Do you sort of remember yourself when you were making writing choices, and like, what goes into those choices? Yeah, I love this question so much because I think about choice all the time. I think a writer's choices are basically who they are. I think the choices that you make are the the writing you make. I read the story and if I read it again now, it's been quite a few years since I wrote it. I think I would make different choices now, to be quite honest, right? I would choose different words. Sometimes I cringe when certain ones come up. I won't say which ones they are, but it's like that thing you mentioned about wanting to change the book that you've already written. I think because you're a slightly different person who would make slightly different choices in this moment. But I think there is something very beautiful about just writing the story that you would write in that moment as who you are. This is a really nice answer that we're ending on because the show that the story is a part of is about surprising growth. And you're talking actually about growth of a writer, how you would make different choices as you move on. And I think that's so beautiful. Yeah, I think you're constantly changing as a person. And that's a beautiful thing. I think with every writing project, I'm trying to reach a little bit farther. You know, what can I do? Can I do this better? And I think I always start something that's sort of out of my reach, a little bit uncomfortable for me. I start something that I think I have no idea how this is going to end, how I'm going to pull this off. And hopefully you grow into the person who can finish it. That was a bit of my conversation with the author Rachel Kong. 
I often feel slightly sad when I finish reading or listening to a story or novel. Hearing from a writer in an interview is a way of getting a bit more of their sensibility, their way of seeing the world. And in the case of Rachel Kong, I was very glad to be around that a little while longer. One of the reasons I like Kong's story, My Dear You, is that death is only the starting point for growth and change. Even in the afterlife, there's a chance to revisit our fragility and learn something. But hey, maybe you and I shouldn't wait that long. As Kong says, when she starts a short story, she doesn't know where it's going. That's true for readers and listeners, too. When we hear a short story, who knows where it will take us, and we might even grow along the way. That's our show. I'm Meg Wallitzer. Thanks for joining me for Selected Shorts. Selected Shorts is produced by Jennifer Brennan. Our literary team is Matthew Love, Drew Richardson, and Vivienne Woodward. Our director of marketing is Mary Shimkin. Our radio producers are Sarah Montague and Jenny Falcon. The readings are recorded by Miles B. Smith. Our programs presented at the Getty Center in Los Angeles are recorded by Phil Richards. Our mix engineer for this episode was Dennis Jacobson. Our theme music is David Peterson's That's the Deal, performed by the Deerdorf Peterson Group. Selected Shorts is supported by the Dungannon Foundation, creator of the Ray Award for the short story. Support is also provided by the NYC COVID-19 Response and Impact Fund in the New York Community Trust, the Howard Gilman Foundation, the Schubert Foundation, the Sharina Endowment Fund, the Blanchette Hooker Rockefeller Fund, the Achilles and Bodman Foundation, the Henry Nias Foundation, the Fan Fox and Leslie R. Samuels Foundation, the Michael Tuck Foundation, the Vida Foundation, the Axe Houghton Foundation, the Lemberg Foundation, and the Grodzins Fund. Selected Shorts is made possible by the National Endowment for the Arts and with public funds from the New York State Council on the Arts with the support of Governor Kathy Hochul and the New York State Legislature. Additional support is provided by the Isaiah Sheffer Fund for new initiatives. Symphony Space thanks our generous supporters, including our board of directors, producer circle, and members who make our programs possible with their annual support. Selected Shorts is produced and distributed by Symphony Space. <laughs>